Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode five and the invasion is imminent. As we heard last episode, Argentinian businessman Senor Davidov had chartered a boat to take 41 of his men to South Georgia in order to salvage metal and other materials from abandoned whaling stations. They had not reported to the British head of the scientific mission at the port of Gritbeken, despite being told to do so. It was March 1982, and the Bahia Buen Suceso had dropped off the scrapmen on the island who were breaking down the abandoned buildings. They had also been joined by a French film crew who were forced to seek shelter at South Georgia. After they had fixed up the broken tiller and mast, they had sailed to Leith Bay from Gritbeken to film the scrapping, having decided to forego their planned trip to the Antarctic which had almost ended in catastrophe. Sir Brie and his two friends were welcomed by the Argentinians. Remember, the British had been extremely unfriendly and refused to help the three Frenchmen when they had eventually made it to Kleetweiken after spending 1,300 miles being blown about in the South Atlantic. The British magistrate on South Georgia had reported the Argentinian infringements to Falklands Governor Rex Hunt, who had been briefing the Foreign Office. By the 20th of March, London was receiving calls that the Argentinian military had arrived. Ironically, they were on their way but were yet to arrive, but the British government sent a formal complaint to Buenos Aires demanding that the party ashore be removed, and if this was not done, they would have to take whatever action seemed necessary. The same day, HMS Endurance departed from Port Stanley in the Falklands with 22 Royal Marines on board. Watching closely were the Argentinian airline officials who were running the airfield nearby, and they duly sent their own message to Buenos Aires that the ship had left along with the Marines. Either the British or the Argentinians would have to climb down, and neither appeared willing. This has been regarded as one of the most crucial days of the war. The following day, 21st of March, the Argentine government informed London that it assumed that all workmen had actually left with the Bahia Buen Sotiaso, which sailed from Leith in South Georgia that very morning. Of course, the men hadn't left. On the 23rd of March, Lord Carrington, the British Foreign Secretary, sent an even stronger message to Buenos Aires. If the Bahia Buen Solcheso was not ordered back to remove the 41 Argentinian workers that were on South Georgia, the Royal Marines would do this forcibly. Endurance was now ordered to head straight for South Georgia and arrived there on the 24th of March. Then the crew awaited further orders. The Argentinians responded with a military move of their own. The naval vessel Bahia Paraiso had been carrying out routine training near the South Orkney Islands, and then the captain headed towards South Georgia with the Junta determined they wouldn't lose face. Endurance put their 22 Royal Marines ashore at Kritbeken on the 24th of March, while the Bahia Paraiso arrived at Leith overnight. On March 25th, Brie and his two French colleagues had gone to bed aboard their yacht in the Bay of Leith, and they were half asleep when something jolted them awake. Brea looked out the porthole and saw the beam of a flashlight on the superstructure of a large ship that had docked in the bay. That wasn't the vessel that dropped off the Argentinian scrappers, which had departed two days before on its journey back to the mainland. He didn't know yet, but it was the Bahia Paraiso. Brea clambered on deck to see what was going on. He found himself face to face with a group of men in camouflage uniforms, faces blackened, belts full of grenades, automatic rifles on their shoulders. These were Argentinian commandos. The Frenchmen were told they were safe as long as they didn't use their radio and didn't photograph anything. Then the commandos left. These were Argentinian Navy Marines, and Brie was in the middle of military action. 
Despite the warnings, he climbed down into the Zodiac attached to his yacht, lay down, and began filming the disembarkation of troops and equipment from Argentina's newest fleet auxiliary, Bahia Paraíso. There's quite a bit of disinformation and false reporting around this incident. I'll stick to the facts as we have them, particularly the recorded facts, and this is where the Frenchman Brie is crucial. Later on the 25th, the Frenchmen were invited to dine with the scrapmen at Leith Bay inside what used to be the whaling station hospital. There were many Argentinian troops there. Buenos Aires came, only 14, but the French counted more like 100. Argentinians were all dressed in civilian clothes and Brie was invited to sit opposite a blonde-haired, boyish-looking man, nicknamed El Rubio. That was Captain Alfredo Astiz, who you heard about last episode. El Rubio, the blonde angel, the hawk or the butcher of Cordoba, take your pick, played an almost demonic role in the Junta's dirty war against leftists, particularly between 1976 and 1977. Amnesty International and the Argentinian Commission on Human Rights listed his crimes later as kidnapping, torture and murder. The French government sought his response to the disappearance of two French nuns, Sister Alice Dumont and Sister Leonie Duquet. Astiz was involved in their torture and reported rape. The Swedish government also wanted to interview Astiz later about their citizen, 15-year-old Dagmar Hagelin, who was shot in her back and died while trying to escape his clutches. So not a very nice guy, nor a truly professional soldier, and here he was leading a large group of Argentinian military on South Georgia. Brie had no idea that he was facing a brutal man, saying that Astiz spoke like a lawyer. He'd lived in London and Paris, and fashionably, the life of cocktails, nightclubs, concerts. Astiz was forced to flee Paris in 1979, when Argentinian exiles he'd been sent to infiltrate there found out who he was. He spent time in my homeland, South Africa, after this, where he was Argentina's naval attaché. The apartheid government was friends with the Argentinian junta, but he was also forced to flee from South Africa when he was exposed as the torturer of Cordoba. Back in South Georgia on the 26th of March, Astiz and his merry men laid mines as what he called an insurance against a possible English assault. He also made it clear that the Frenchmen were now prisoners on the island, albeit well-treated. They were not allowed to leave. Brie noted in his diary, It is like being in a western... The glacial landscape, the isolation, and this abandoned village contribute even more to the unreality of the situation. The British were already aware that the Bahia Paraiso was in Leith Harbour. An observation post had been set up on a bluff overlooking the inlet, and the scientists reported its arrival. They messaged London via satellite, and the Foreign Office decided to keep this information a closely guarded secret. So far, the news of the scrapmen was public, but the government didn't want anyone to know that the Argentine military was now on South Georgia. It was embarrassing, and the political leadership would have ruined a possible solution by going off half-cocked. The British Parliament adjourned for the weekend on the 26th of March, blissfully unaware of the real situation. Back in Buenos Aires, the Junta had already ordered Rear Admiral Bousset to produce an immediate plan for the invasion of the Falklands. That had the previous plan and been perusing this for some time, as you heard, but now events sped up. Buenos Aires's original idea had been to invade in September, after the rough South Atlantic winter had eased. 
By the evening of the 23rd of March already, Admirals Lombardo, Alara, and Busse were gathered at Puerto Belgrano. The all-important Army General Garcia was at 5 Corps HQ, only 37 kilometers away. These men communicated and drew up a rushed plan by the evening of the 25th of March. Junta leader Galtieri was told the invasion of the Falklands could begin on the 1st of April, with a South Georgia operation planned for the same day. The step-by-step escalation towards war continued rapidly. The Junta accepted Lombardo's timetable and ordered preparations for the invasion. They also ordered the dispatch of the commanders to South Georgia we've just heard about. Captain Astiz was told to plan an attack on Grietweiken, where the few dozen British scientists were based. The Falklands plan was simple. First, they'd capture Stanley with its airport and Royal Marines barracks. Then they'd focus on the second largest settlement at Goose Green, Darwin. The Argentine Navy would carry out these invasions, which was partly dictated by the amphibious nature of the operation. The Argentinian Navy had been chomping at the bit for some time to conduct just the sort of invasion and were highly motivated. After the initial phase, the Marine Landing Force on the Falklands would be withdrawn as soon as they secured the objectives, which was believed to probably take a few hours. Then an infantry regiment and an engineer company would be brought into Stanley by air. So finally Vice Admiral Lombardo's question about strategy was answered. This would be a full-scale occupation, and it was believed the British would not respond. If they did, the admirals saw only two options, either an ignominious withdrawal or a fight. Remarkably, the Argentine ships and units involved had just over two days to make their preparations. Friday the 26th and Saturday 27th of March were quiet diplomatically. The centre of attention was very much on South Georgia. Just about every serviceable warship in the Argentine Navy was going to set sail, including the aircraft carrier Vientacinso de Mayo, which was the flagship of Task Force 2-0. It was going to be located some distance away from the action providing support. Most Argentinian Navy personnel believed that Task Force 2-0 was a prestige and display force with very little operational requirements for most of the vessels that put out to sea. They knew that the only British ship anywhere near them was the Endurance, which only had two 20mm Bofors guns and two light WASP helicopters. The nearest British units apart from Endurance was the small garrison and a single ship at Belize in Central America and a group of warships exercising in the Atlantic but off Morocco. Later, an Argentine officer who was taken as prisoner of war told historian Mark Middleton that the large amphibious force was not necessary Three transport aircraft full of troops could have done the job instead of the Navy, but in his words, They sent the whole fleet. The whole thing was a crazy expedition by demented people. It was stupid to offend a big country like Britain and to do it without the support of world opinion. And what's more, the cost was going to be astronomical. The actual landing went to Task Force 4-0. Its ships under the control of Rear Admiral Gualta Alara, short and cheerful by nature, He'd spent time as naval attaché in London in 1981. His ships included two Type 42 destroyers, two frigates, a submarine, a polar vessel, a transporter, and most important of all, an amphibious landing ship called Cabo Sal Antonio. The most modern vessels the Argentinians owned were all part of this force. In what would be the first of many, many military ironies, the two Type 42 destroyers were British in design. Hercules had been built in Britain as well, while the Santissima Trinidad 
was built in Argentina under British license. Furthermore, Buenos Aires still owed a London bank £3.8 million for the Type 42 contract. The debt would only be settled after the war. Leading the landing was Chief Planner Carlos Busse, who was the senior officer in the Argentine Marine Corps. The centre of his force would be a battalion of his Marine Infantry. 2nd Battalion at Puerto Belgrano was specifically trained to work with the fleet. They had taken part in a joint exercise with the United States Marines in Patagonia only five months earlier, and they were well equipped. The 1st Battalion would provide a reserve company and the platoon that would be sent on the Grico to overcome the Royal Marines who were now about to try to take South Georgia. As regards the order of battle, the Argentinians were going for a big bang. The forces included 2nd Marine Infantry Battalion of 387 men, amphibious vehicles, 20 Amtraks, 5-wheeled large transport vehicles with 101 men aboard, an amphibious commando company of 92 men, 12 more men from the Busos Tacticos or Beach Reconnaissance Unit, 41 men and 6 105mm artillery guns, 65 more men of the 1st Marine Infantry Battalion, and then 84 troops in a support logistics unit. The Army was sending only 39, a platoon of the 25th Regiment. They were going to fly into Stanley and provide part of the full-time garrison after the invasion. They would be joined by 41 others from the Civil Affairs Unit, which would set up the future Argentinian administration after the invasion. That means the total strength of the Argentinian forces invading the Falklands was 904 men, no women. After the landing, two more platoons of 25th Regiment would also take Goose, Green and Darwin. These ships were packed to the gills. Every spare corner was filled. The naval transport ship Isla de los Estados would carry troops and supplies, mainly a huge reserve of food for both the garrison and the island population because there was not much certainty about how long both would be cut off after the invasion. There were no major hitches as the Argentinians set sail with troops loading from 0800 on the morning of Sunday 28th of March. Secrecy had been maintained. There was no general mobilization, no flybys by dozens of Air Force aircraft, nothing really to give away what a momentous moment this was. British intelligence noted the movement of troops, but Argentinian newspapers were reporting a joint anti-submarine exercise with the Uruguayan Navy. It must be said, however, that many inside British intelligence were now growing extremely alarmed and believed that Buenos Aires was going to attack the Falklands. The Foreign Office was still sticking to its previous view. Not likely, they said. This was just bluster, despite the Argentinian commanders already on South Georgia. On the other hand, Argentinian troops had no idea where they were going other than a comment that they were involved in live-fire exercises in Patagonia. Some did guess the real reason. The more experienced among the troops counted the boxes of ammunition and the medical supplies and came to the conclusion that they must be heading off to something much more serious. It was just too much money being spent on provisions for a run-of-the-mill exercise. Senior officers who were in the know were proud. They were going to revenge a great dishonor. They were the chosen few and were going to regain the Malvinas. Many non-commissioned officers had also guessed and stored Argentinian flags to raise on the island and they wrapped their kits aboard ship with these flags. That accounts for the forest of Argentinian flags that were to appear shortly on the Falklands. 
and so this impressive fleet of ships set sail. After a few hours, as lunch was served, all officers were told of their destination. Most troops still didn't know, but given what happened next, perhaps they'd appreciated a little heads up. They were going to get very sick. It wasn't as if they could have done anything about it. There were no mobile phones back then. The intention was to sail down the coast of Argentina until past the Falklands, then turn and approach the islands from the south. But a fierce storm caught the fleet on Monday, 29th of March, lasting 48 hours, and that spoiled their plan. The broad-bottomed amphibious landing craft Cabo San Antonio suffered most. It was loaded with 880 men instead of the usual 450, and rolled as much as 44 degrees, causing a flood of seasickness and wretchedness for the poor infantry aboard. The morning of Wednesday 31st broke. The landing was now less than 24 hours away, but the fleet was behind schedule, even if they turned and sailed directly for the Falklands. So the landings were delayed by a day to the 2nd of April, a decision taken by General Garcia and Rear Admiral Alara. They were sailing together on the Santisima Trinidad, and General Garcia had been appointed as the overall commander of the Malvinas Theater of Operations by President Galtieri. Eventually, on Thursday 1st of April, early in the morning, the storm broke. And the British Foreign Office suddenly woke up and became aware that things were moving towards a possible invasion, and it was about time to tell the officials on the islands. Intelligence had also just picked up the movement of an Argentinian submarine close to the Falklands. Soon after breakfast on Wednesday 31st of March, Governor Rex Hunt had learned from London that the sub was close. At 1000 hours 30, Hunt summoned two marine majors, Major Mark Norman and Major Gary Newt, and asked what the meagre garrison could do. As the Sunday Times Insight team reported later, Nothing indicates just how badly Britain was miscalculating the looming crisis than the plan that emerged from that meeting. They had no inkling that a full beach-borne invasion was coming. So on the 31st of March, Corporal David Carr was dispatched with two Marines to the lighthouse overlooking Cape Pembroke, armed with binoculars and night sights. Lance Corporal Steve Black volunteered to mount a lone vigil on Sapper Hill. They were on the lookout for the submarine, and when spotted, they were supposed to call the Reaction Squad. Corporal Steve Johnson and five Marines were the Reaction Squad. They were to speed to where their submarine landed its commandos and arrest the landing party. This is obviously almost comic relief, but remember that the British still didn't believe that Buenos Aires would follow through with a major landing. It was going to be pinprick style, if you remember last episode's intelligence briefing. Later, Mike Norman said they thought the Argentinians were, in his words, simply in the niggling game. While Governor Hun said, We thought there would have been a bit of a scrap on the beach, and then we would all have a glass of sherry, and I'd tell them to go away and jolly well not come back. Intelligence reports pointed towards something far more sinister, but it was the estimation of Foreign Office hacks that mattered, and they'd got it totally wrong in the last few weeks. They had been briefed about the fleet setting sail, about the crates of ammo on board, about the instability in Argentina implying some kind of external action was required by Galtieri. Still, they preferred to believe it was another case of cry-wolf, or at least only a small landing party, which was designed to test Britain's readiness. Then the Argentinian submarine failed to appear off Stanley. There was no landing on Thursday 1st of April. 
At York Bay in East Falklands, the motor vessel Forest awaited with its skipper Jack Solace at the wheel and six marines sitting munching on their cold meals, all staring at the radar which showed nothing. There was some muttering about false alarms. Then at midday on Thursday, the Foreign Office finally got its information ducks in a row. Thirteen hours before the invasion, they sent an urgent message to Rex Hunt and explained what was in store for him. A considerable invasion fleet was on its way and would be off Cape Pembroke at first light on Friday, 2nd of April. It looks, as Hunt showed the cable to Majors Norman and Newt, as if the silly buggers mean it. The citizens were also becoming aware. Local radio station employee Claudette Mosley bumped into her friend who worked at the cable office, who then mentioned that things were very, very bad. At the government secretariat, 16-year-old Natalie McPhee was told to pull the file containing all phone numbers and home addresses of the island's officials. They had an urgent meeting at 4.30pm. Senior foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times, Simon Winchester, was in Stanley about to pull together a story on the South Georgia scrap merchants. He had chartered a Czechoslovakian to sail a small yacht to Leith Bay, and they were conducting a test on their compasses when they passed by the Marines setting up mortars on Navy Point. Meanwhile, it was organized chaos back in Stanley. Officials were locking up accounts and records, classified documents were being burned, the shredder just couldn't cope with the volume, the cipher machine was destroyed. For Rex Hunt's wife Mavis, this was a chilling reminder of another rapid misadventure. She had been with Hunt in Saigon in 1975, the last days there were full of papers burning in oil drums and she had refused to leave despite Rex Hunt's insistence. Once bitten, twice shy. This time she wouldn't stay at Government House and went off to a family friend's house for the night. And that night, Falkland Island's radio broadcast to the scattered communities of Darwin, Goose Green, San Carlos, Teal Inlet, Fox Bay, Pebble Island and instead of the usual reports about airline services and such like, Rex Hunt told the community they were about to be invaded. The evening's DJ was Canadian Mark Smallwood, who seemed to retain his balance even after Hunt's horrifying announcement. Well, as it says in those famously friendly letters on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Then he played the usual evening's requests, a Canadian with a stiff upper lip. Sitting in the Goose Hotel... Journalist Simon Winchester was incredulous. They confirmed the report with Hunt and filed a report on the ground. They also tuned into Argentina's Radio Nacional in time to hear a triumphant voice announce, De Malvinas will be ours by dawn. Talk about right place, right time. Fear gripped the islanders who gathered treasured possessions together, including gin bottles and pictures of the Queen. The Argentinian gas workers at the airport were arrested. A state of emergency was declared. The journalists decided to hang out in the grounds of Government House, which was a mistake. They would be directly in the line of fire and were going to spend most of the coming morning lying flat on their faces, which is not the best place to witness an invasion. And that invasion began at 0430 on the morning of 2nd of April 1982, when Argentinian commandos landed near Mullet Creek then moved quickly to the Royal Marine Barracks at Moody Brook. What happened next is for next episode. The theme to this series is a brilliant composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. 
Thanks, Kevin, for letting me use your music. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also email me from the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, chin chin. <laughs>